You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Mic check, please. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America. The DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. Joining me in studio today is Dr. Mike Brazier. How are you, Mike? Doing great, Chris. It's the most wonderful time of the year, right? It is. It is kind of <laughs> like the kickoff of waterfowl season here. The, the, US most, ang- the yeah. most anxiety-filled day of the year for us here at Ducks Unlimited. That's right. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service released the waterfowl population status report today. Mike, you opened up the email, looked at the numbers. What's your first thought? Well, my, my first thoughts were that I was a little bit surprised. Um, I, I go back to a conversation that Scott Stevens and I had, gosh, a number of year, number of months ago, and we were kind of doing a preview of the prairies. And we kind of do this every year. What do the prairies look like? Because you need to look at the prairies in terms of the habitat conditions, kind of figure out, you know, we're going we're gonna to have the potential to have a, a, a boom year, you know, a, a good production year from that part of the part of the world because that's really the place where we can see these boom and bust type of variations and at that time we were optimistic um you know that that last year with 
2022 kind of being the year where we saw the drought ease in some portions of the prairies, we thought we were going to have uh, a bump in the breeding population size this year. And that obviously was not the case. Uh, the total duck number for the traditional survey area this year was 32.32 million. That was down 7% from what we saw last year, 34.657 million. Last year, that number was was expected because remember that was the mm-hmm. first year in like two years, three years that we'd had a survey due to the to COVID and all that. And so last year, that decline wasn't as unexpected. Uh, this year was... I have to confess and say it was a bit of a surprise. Stevens and I were actually saying we probably would have expected a number of 35, maybe 36. You know, nothing nothing was dramatic. Neither yeah. one of us expected something dramatic. And even if you would have told us at that time that the number was going to be flat, I think we could have probably rationalized that. The, the fact that it was down was was kind of where the surprise came in. There's a whole lot of caveats with that. It's kind of where the scientist oh, yeah. comes in. Whenever you're looking at these numbers, there's measures of variation, measures of error around them attributable to a whole bunch of different things. So anyway, that's yeah, down 7% in terms of total ducks from last year, down 9% now from the long-term average. And that's one of the, I guess, comforting take-home points is that we've had three, four years of really intense drought in some portion of that prairie landscape. Uh, We did see recovery from the drought in much of the U.S. prairie portion. Of course, there's some caveats to that as well, given the timing of when that precipitation arrived. But Canadian prairies still dry, and that has been, we have, we are now sort of in a four or five year trend of declining total duck populations there uh, in that traditional survey area. And, and talking to our DU Canada colleagues, talking to some of the uh, other folks in the, uh, in, in the service and looking at some of the other reports, yeah, it's still really dry in the Canadian prairies, and that makes up a huge, huge portion of that landscape. So initial surprise but when you stop and think about it and look at some of the the way that rain and snow fell last year and then this year, although there are some mixed signals here and there, some folks will say, you know, it's it's not an unprecedented result given the type of conditions we're seeing. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting is, you know, as soon as we posted the survey results on our social media pages, all of a sudden we've got the armchair biologists are everywhere. Absolutely. And- you know, one of the unique things with Ducks Unlimited is we don't have the opportunity to just speculate all the time. You <laughs> but, Scott, actually, but Scott Stevens says we're good at that. Yeah, that's right. It is fun to do. But, you know, that's why we're doing shows like this yeah. is to talk about these. You're talking about the traditional surveyors. You're talking about, you know, drought. What is impacting these waterfowl populations? Yeah. I think that's the most important thing for some of these people to understand is what are these initial drivers. And so before we get into the species um, overall conversation here, species by species, let's talk about, you know, the pond counts. You yeah. talked about drought. You know, it is actually down nine percent from last year yeah when you know if you were to even follow along with the fish and wildlife service their pilot biologist reports because i've followed along mm-hmm. with a lot of those you didn't see a lot of you know the majority of those were talking about hey this is you know fair to good habitat um and then when i think that was the biggest surprise at least for me just from following along with that is that it was down you know from last year and it's still down five percent over the long-term average yeah I wasn't as surprised by the pond number it's because I I kind of mentally draft up different scenarios to kind of help us prepare for for today and, and and one of the scenarios that I had in my mind for for pond counts was something that that bracketed 
the number that we had last year, bracketed kind of 5 million, the 5 million market. So I guess to get right to the number, the May Pond count for the U.S. and Canadian prairies combined this year was 4.975, which was down 9% from the estimate of basically 5.5 million last year. As you said, that's down, this year's numbers down 5% from the long-term average. That actually wasn't as big of a surprise for me um, because that's the pond count this year. So there's there's two things to remember that we're trying to piece together here. One is like, what is the what do we think the pond count is going to be this year? But what the pond count is this year, the pond count this year doesn't produce ducks that were counted in the spring 2023 survey, mm-hmm. right? Yep. It can influence where and does influence where they settle, and there is some known issue or, or their known relationship between where they settle and maybe being easier to count in the survey. There's a little bit of that going on. Also, kind of thinking back to the pond count from last year, that's what determined the production from last year, which would have produced a fall flight from last year and would have resulted in any kind of carryover this year to produce the breeding population estimates that we see there. So it can get kind of kind of um, you know complicated as we as we talk about some of this. But yeah, that May pond number is very important because of it it drives that production. Um, so right around five million ponds this year. And and the fact that you mentioned the reports from some of the survey biologists, pilot biologists, there was one I think that flies the eastern Dakotas and it comments in those field report reports noted to that to that person it was some of the best conditions they had mm-hmm. seen in in their in their history of of that person flying that survey and so those like the, the timing of that rainfall was perfect relative to when they flew the survey and it created a lot of sheet water but the Eastern Dakotas, when you look into the numbers a little bit, that's one of the areas that kind of stands out as having a drop in numbers of ducks. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I'll say is that the total pond count um, in the in that Eastern Dakota, if I'm remembering this correctly, I've only looked at it quickly, I think it was down from last year. And the North Dakota, we got an early read on some habitat conditions from North Dakota, from the North Dakota Game and Fish and their duck survey that they conduct every year. Their pond count was down this year from last year. So there is some consistency there mm-hmm. in what we saw between those surveys. Um, so, yeah, uh, that's, the pond count is still okay. Now, I guess what I would say is last year when you look into the pond numbers a little bit closer and look into when that precipitation arrived, there are several reports that that, that kind of cite that the last year, if we're thinking about production, last year was a late spring. I mean, it stayed pretty cold on the prairies uh, into maybe May. And it wasn't until May, I think, maybe late April, early May when we got that heavy snow in the Dakotas. And so that water was a little bit late, if I'm remembering this correctly. I may not, I need to look into that a little bit better, but I think it was a little bit late and certainly was a late spring, which may have constrained some of the production out of the prairies last year. Now this year, um, well, I guess the other piece of that is that after that initial recharge of those wetlands last year, which we all celebrated, reports from that landscape were that it, it got dry again, yep. such that by, by the time fall rolled around, it was getting really, really dry, even in some of those prairie regions of North and South Dakota. So then it was looking like it was going to be dry again coming into this breeding season, but we got those favorable rains in the, prairie, in, in, in the Dakotas. Uh, four to five, six inches of rain in some of those key geographies, but it came in May. 
And so by that time, there is some thinking that perhaps the early nesting species had already kind of settled out and, and maybe they didn't benefit quite as much from that from that rain, given the timing of, of when it was. And so there's a few things going on there that we'll have to look into a little bit more. And I, I don't want to pretend or lead anyone to believe that we're going to look at these numbers and be able to perfectly explain every up or down movement in the numbers. You just, you just can't do that because yeah. these are still wild animals. It's still a 2 million square mile survey area. Uh, it's conducted over the course of four to six weeks. Uh, it, there's a lot of moving parts to it still. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's a very good point to, uh, you know, kind of share with people is that there's so many moving parts with this, so many variables involved uh, with getting these numbers that this is not necessarily concrete. It's just something that serves as a guide. Well, it's a incredibly valuable, it is an estimate. And mm-hmm. so it has measures of vari- variation around this. But the important thing to remember is that we don't make decisions, con- certainly not conservation decisions based on any single year of data. It is true that here in the States, we use uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service and state agencies use annual data to inform harvest regulations as an annual uh, decision process. But from a conservation standpoint, we look at a longer track record of data, what those numbers are doing, going up or going down across different geographies. And then we try to figure out through collaborations with our research partners, what may be responsible for some of those changes across the space of time. We had a, had an episode with Maddie Lohman just yesterday, I think it was released, uh, talking about some of her work, which is looking into some of these very relationships. Why do duck numbers go up or down in certain parts of this survey region uh, and trying to trying to link those changes to changes in land use, changes in environmental conditions. That's the type of work that we continue to invest in. Cool. That's good information there. Um, let's go ahead and move on to the species. Let's and do it. Of course, right off the bat, you know, King Mallard. Yeah. Wow. That's, yeah, you that know, that's wow. the first one that pops out. Yep. And, you know, down 18%, down 23% over the long-term average. What was your initial reaction to that? And what have you heard just kind of rumblings through the building um, that's a pretty shocking number. It, it was a surprising number. Wow was the, was the thing that came to my mind. I, don't, I haven't heard a whole lot through the building yet. I haven't really talked to a whole lot of people yet about that number. What I can do to kind of put that in context, when you look through that report, uh, it's the lowest mallard estimate from the traditional survey area in about 30 years since you know, basically yeah, predating, a, uh, yeah. predating the adaptive harvest management uh, process that we're in right now. Uh, I, I did talk to one person, another fellow waterfowl biologist, who said, you know, some of these numbers don't really surprise me all that much, given the severity of the drought that we have. It is not uncommon in the past for us to have seen what they describe as a lag effect, which basically means that it sometimes takes a year or two before you see these birds really start to recover, start to crank out new birds. And especially that might be the case if the year in which you saw recovery from that drought wasn't like an ideal recovery situation where that precipitation came a little bit late. It was cold late, so you wouldn't have had like optimal conditions for production. And again, last year, Western Saskatchewan, Southern Alberta, or pretty much all of Prairie Alberta was still exceptionally dry. So we still had, and, and the Canadian prairies can, when they're wet, they can, they can really, do some good work in terms of producing birds. So yeah, back to the mallard. The other thing that I'll say, 
uh, whenever we were transcribing these numbers, that if, if people look into these these reports really closely, and if you look at the 2022 number that we have in our chart, and then you compare it to the 2022 report, uh, you'll notice a little bit of difference in that number, and that's not uncommon. What the Fish and Wildlife Service does, they go back and, and sometimes they'll redo the analysis or they'll find a piece of data that maybe wasn't, uh, wasn't incorporated initially or something. There's, there's, they go back and just like any kind of economic, if you're an economics, uh, fanatic, you know, a lot of these reports that they submit quarterly or annually release the initial report, then they kind of go back and do some closer scrutiny of it. That's, that would be the explanation for any of those deviations in those 2022 numbers. If we have people out there looking at it closely, uh, 18% decline from last year and then 23% change long-term average. So yeah, that's a, that, that's a number that, that's going to get people's attention. What I can tell you is that we also have taken a look at the adaptive harvest management report for next year. You know, these results will be used to inform harvest regulations next year. For any of these birds that we talk about, um, the recommendations in that adaptive harvest, man- harvest management report are for there to be the regulations next year to be essentially the same as what they are this year. So it would still mean liberal season recommended. Now, a lot of stuff has to happen. Formal process plays out between the flyway councils and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, but these are public reports. I'm not sharing anything that's not out there. Um, they have to go through their formal process, but the recommendation from those adaptive harvest management models would be for liberal season in the central Mississippi flyway, liberal in the Pacific, and then liberal in the Atlantic. The mallard limit in the Atlantic flyway, according to the recommendation, given the current data, would again be for a four mallard limit in the Atlantic flyway. All recommendations for next year at this point, I would say. Well, not even a recommendation, I guess you would say. That's the what they call the prescribed, the optimal regulatory, mm-hmm. you know, package or whatever. So, anyway, just uh, I know that was one of the first things that people asked me whenever they saw that. Well, what's that going to mean for harvest yeah. regulations, you know? No, I did. And so, uh, when you look at that AHM report, it still falls within that liberal package. And that is based on what we've learned from nearly 30 years of data about how harvest affects or has very little effect on mallard survival rates and our, our the just how difficult it is to really push up harvest rates through harvest regulations. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's kind of go down the list real quick. We don't want to get bogged down on one species here because we've got some to cover. Um, Gadwall seem to be in good shape. Your thoughts? Um, Gadwall, yep. They're in, let's see, what was it? Down 5% from last year, up 25% from long-term average. So still real healthy population. I don't have a whole lot to add to that right now. I'd suggest we kind of, let's just skip through some of these. Yeah. And I think there's a couple on here that we'll want to talk a little bit more about. American Widgeon maybe the next one we'd give a little yeah. bit of time to. Um, Widgeon, I mean, that that's, I would not say necessarily a shocking number, um, but definitely one jumps off the chart uh, for someone just looking at, especially someone who's just kind of a layman and not necessarily as scientific as yourself here. Um, But, you know, down 14% this year, down 28% over the long-term average, something to definitely discuss. Yeah, it is. It is. And so what happens when we see this report, one of the first things that we do, we transcribe them and then we look to see which of these species has the like greatest change or the change from last year and which one is farthest away from its LTA that we may not have expected. American Widgeon was one of those, 28% below its long-term average. This this estimate for American Widgeon, 1.89 million, was I think like the lowest 
in about 30 years or something like that. It's kind of in that same category with Mallards. Uh, and so I did look at that look real quickly at the little table they have for it. And, the, the, and this is going to be true for some of these other species as well. Alaska, Northwest Territories, and Old Crow Flats is a survey region that saw a 50% decline in the number of breeding ducks from last year. Exactly what the cause of that is, not real sure. We probably never will know definitively. It could be, as as one of my colleagues was saying, it could be that we just didn't have as strong of an overflight year because there was a bit more moisture in the prairies last year. And what I mean by overflight is that when the prairies are dry, there are some species that have a higher propensity for flying over the prairies, going into the boreal forest. So the higher number that we saw in that area last year could have been because of a stronger overflight last year, kind of based on timing or something. We, we just, again, don't know for certain. But the decline in American widgeon, you could look at that number from that that region and say, well, that decline could be totally captured by what happened in that geography. Mm-hmm. So we just, yeah. we don't know. It's, a, it's These are highly mobile species that we know they do move around. And so um, we're not going to ever have a definitive answer. And again, I would say that's why it's so important that we have sustained uh, investments in these monitoring programs so that we're not freaking out about yeah. any one year. It's going to require patience to kind of look and see what happens next year and, and, and year after that. Yeah. Um, you know, green wing teal, blue wing teal, um, both species are in good shape long-term average-wise. Green wing teal is 15% over. Blue wing teal are still 2%. Although it appears that the blue wing teal uh, took a little hit this year. Yeah. Like minus, or, you know, they're down 19% from last year. Do you think that's indicative of that habitat in the Dakotas that seemed to really carry the blue wings last year? Or do you- I don't know. That's one that's a bit of a surprise. Uh, I did have an opportunity to quickly chat with Dr. Scott Stevens because, of course, blue wing teal are a favorite of his. Uh, and... Yeah, that kind of surprised him. I remember hearing people say uh, last year we saw lots of blue wings. You know, they would have arrived after that moisture hit the landscape up there. Uh, so I, I don't know. I uh, don't know what's going on with that. Again, another one another one of those species for which we'll say we're not going to panic about any mm-hmm. of these. We're Just like we didn't panic with pintail last year. We're going to get to that one in a minute. Um, we're not going to panic over any of these others because – it could be another one of the – could be another lag effect. We just don't know all the mechanics of, of what are happening. But down 19% from last year, which is no doubt a bit of a surprise from what we were anticipating. But still 2% above or essentially equal to the long-term average. Yeah. So still a healthy population there for blue wings. And given the conditions that we saw in the prairies this year with that moisture falling in early May, blue wings would be expected to benefit from that. Um so, yeah, we, I think there's reason to believe uh, there's, there's going to be decent production out of some of these species this year in those geographies that had water. There's still dry conditions in the Canadian prairies, though. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I say that just kind of temper people's expectations. Which is, you know, another species, northern shoveler, uh, you know, down 6%, but still up 8%. Yep. Not something that's necessarily alarming. Um, but the next species on the list is one that you just mentioned that is kind of the bright spot for this survey, which e- makes it even more of an oddity. <laughs> That's I, I, don't, right. yeah, I don't even know how to explain That's it. Right. All of a sudden, there's like, so northern pintail are up 24%, you know, from 2022. But the scary part about that is they're up 24%, but they're still down 
43% over the long-term average. So there's definitely still, oh, yeah. you know, some some serious work to be done there, but some encouraging words from the Pentel, mainly because we were really close last year. You and I had this conversation a lot. We were very close to losing Pentel last year as far as, you know, that... We were very... And so this is, this is where I have to be a little precise. We were very close to being below the threshold at which a closed season becomes... An option. An option, I guess, yeah. is the way to say it. The, the way it's written is like above that level, having a closed season is not an option. Yeah. But it doesn't say if it's below it, it 100% has to be closed. Because, again, what is what all of those adaptive harvest management models produced produce are optimal regulatory strategies. It mm-hmm. identifies those optimal regulatory strategies. There's... The, the Flyway Councils and the Fish and Wildlife Service still have to go through the formal process of making recommendations, approving them. And so I don't want to sit here and pretend like I know for certain that if it would have fallen below that, that automatically meant kind of hammer down, it's a closed season. Yeah. I don't know that because I I don't work in that harvest management space. Uh, so I just want to kind of be careful about that. It's very difficult to communicate that concisely, but, you know. I, the number is just public, <laughs> you know. And so That's as you right. look at it, you're like, eh, what's going to happen right. if they go below that number? But fortunately, it uh, looks like Pintel's. Uh, made a made some progress. Uh, yeah, and again, as you said, that's one that kind of makes some of this a little bit, little difficult to explain. And you started off by saying we don't have the luxury of speculating, but the fact of the matter is, on some of this, that's the only thing we can yeah, do. No, yeah, this is absolutely. the one area where we have yeah. to speculate a little bit and, and suggest. Well, this is what could have happened. And look, I'll be honest on this. Uh, I had a conversation with I think it might have been Scott Stevens. I was talking to also about this one. Uh, Northern pintail is a species through which years of research we have, we do know that in years when the prairies are dry, they will overfly. Sometimes they overfly to areas that aren't surveyed that well. And there's actually some of the models around these pintails uh, identify what's called a northern unsurveyed area. We know there are some birds that go Mm -hmm. there, but they go there in presumably low numbers maybe not as efficient or effective to survey that, but we know they're there and we think we know they're going to go there and overfly the prairies and they may be a little bit more difficult in some of those years. So maybe pintails settled in landscapes this year that are more, that that are easier to survey. Again, this is speculation and I'm kind of getting out of my space a little bit because I don't participate in the surveys. I don't, our our organization does not, uh, does not do that, doesn't run them, doesn't analyze the data or anything. But I think the science would tell us that's a possibility Mm -hmm. is that maybe last year we didn't capture all of them. I think most people would say, yeah, that's probably the case. But the fact of the matter is you, you, implement surveys to the best of your ability based on the best scientific principles and you work from those data and that's what we do and so when we see this number 2.2 million up 24 percent from last year it's reasonable to think that there might be some of that going on that maybe we just captured a little bit more of those this year but then again it could be that they were able to find places to to reproduce when while some of the other species didn't i I just again don't yeah. have a perfect answer for that. Yeah, either way, you know, Otherwise, it's good to but, see yeah, that that's number right. go up. We are we are farther away this year from that closure that that threshold. Yeah. And sure. that's always a good news. Um, let's go into the diving duck species that are in this survey. You got redheads, canvasbacks, scop. Redhead populations appear to be really strong still plus 27% over the long-term average. Down a little bit this year, uh, minus 13%. Yeah. Um, but 
I'm not sure. It does, that doesn't seem like it really had anyone alarmed at that. So yeah, redhead are a species that we don't see. It's not a huge population size. You know, uh, 930,000 is the estimate this year. I will say this is a species for which that population estimate was revised by a little bit from, from last year. If you look at the estimate in the report from last year, it's 991,000. Look at it this year, that what the report, the number in the report for 2022 um, in the you know current report is 1.067 you know so over mm-hmm. a mil- just over a million birds so they did a revision uh, yeah. based on some new data that or, or something so there's a they they do that's not an uncommon thing so yeah 931,000 uh, if you look at the number from last year it was 991 so it would have been an even smaller decline you know if you were yeah. just looking at that number but over the overall still 27% above the long term average species that you know, it's not a high harvest species. It's a, it doesn't show that tremendous fluctuation from year to year. So, yep, that's 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 a species for which it's like we kind of have a pretty good idea what we're going to see mm-hmm. one way or another for that for that one. Yeah, and then canvasbacks. You know, both numbers positive, up six yep. percent from last year, up five percent of long term average. That's good news, but nothing shocking there. Yeah, it's pretty just, well. I'd I'd say that's likely statistically. Uh, insignificant. I mean, let me actually look at that right now. Change from the long-term average. Yeah, I mean, it's it's flat. It's it's statistically not significant from the long-term average uh, in terms of any kind of difference. So so basically yeah. flat there. And then Scott, our last species we've got here, you know, down 4%, which is, that's pretty close to um, almost being statistically be insignificant. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, when you look at this chart every year that we've done it, that yeah. Scott number, the long-term average, is, has remained pretty low, you know, it, down 29%. So you really don't want to see any decrease in that year over year um, with SCOP anyway. So uh, I'm yeah. sure that you guys will probably have discussions about that in, in many shapes and forms. We will. Uh, that is, when people talk about which of the most common duck species do we have, do we kind of elevate in terms of conservation concern, Pintail and scop, you know, in terms of some of the more common species, they're at the top of the list and have been for a number of years. Pintails, I don't think there's anyone that believes we're going to get back to 6 million pintails. That's just, that. Yeah. that's a, it's a different landscape up there. And the science is kind of documented pretty clearly what has changed and how it affects pintail ecology. So we're not going to get back to 6 million pintails. Uh, can we get back to 3 or 4 million pintails? I think with the right type of of conservation programs and sort of incentive-based working land programs, I think there's potential. When a wheat program is one that we've talked about in the past, and if we could get it adopted widely across that prairie landscape, I think that'd be a huge thing for pintails, for a lot of other species as well. You know, it's like everything. You just got to make the economics work on that kind of stuff because people make have to earn, earn a living off the land up there. And can't blame them for that. It's our job to try to find those type of practices that are – beneficial to to waterfowl in our case and that are also uh, attractive and profitable for for the producers for the folks that that own and have to make a living off that land so uh, that's our job to to kind of come up with and scop they're primarily a boreal species uh, and so yeah that is another one that we continue to keep an eye on our du canada colleagues do a lot of work in that area trying to understand uh, what's happening there so yeah we'll continue to um, to invest in research there and conserve habitats, protect those those regions where we have opportunities. You know, I had a couple questions just going around the office, you know, and not even questions, just kind of people mentioning, especially on the magazine staff, we stay pretty in tune to this. 
Um, and, you know, one of the things that came up was, well, we didn't have the survey for two straight years. So we're basing all of this off of last year and this year. Those numbers, those last two years, the, the prairies were pretty dry. They These were, numbers absolutely. could have been way lower yeah. than what you know, we knew because we didn't have the survey. Is that something that comes up in conversations on the science side? Oh, I'm sure it will. Like I said, we haven't had, uh, haven't discussed any of this with the science team yet, but um, yeah, it's, I don't expect our science team to wring our hands too much here over the next couple of weeks about, oh, what are we going to do? This is, this is crisis because it's not. Now we are going to look at the numbers. We're going to be aware of those numbers. We're going to, um, we're going to work with our partners to to identify any additional or, or probably more than identify additional, but reinforce the need for existing uh, sort of research investigations. We know that it's a changing landscape and we know that we can't assume that the relationships that we documented between waterfowl and landscapes, you know, in the past are necessarily going to continue to hold into the future. So uh, this is probably reinforcing that that thinking, and that's not that we would ever really get complacent in that recognition, but uh, it does remind us that despite all of the good that we've done with waterfowl populations and conserving their habitats uh, through all the different programs, uh, we we do continue to lose the capacity to produce ducks in some habitats and some landscapes as a result of conversion of native grassland to uh, to agricultural uses, draining of wetlands for for a variety of reasons, um, the loss of CRP from some and by loss of CRP I mean that the those enrolled contracts are kind of expiring and the landowners are opting to to invest that that land into other alternative uses and again not pointing the finger at those and saying that's a bad thing because everybody has to make a, make a living off of the land that they own nobody's going to blame them for that it's our job to find uh, and to help find agricultural practices that are mutually beneficial to to waterfowl and to producers and that do so in a way that can be economically competitive with the other alternatives that they have for those land uses so um all of this stuff is is kind of it's the it's, those are the things that we've we talk about every every opportunity we get state of the birds report that was out last year we noted sort of the long-term upward trend in waterfowl populations but we took the opportunity to say hey we can't get complacent because we know there are pressures that are still out there. And this report reminds us that, yes, despite the resilience of waterfowl populations, we can't let our guard down. We have to continue to invest in conservation. We have to continue to invest in uh, monitoring programs that help us track the ups and downs of these species. And not just population monitoring programs, but habitat monitoring programs as well. And then also investing in continued uh, targeted research and science to help us figure out what's going on with some of these species. So that's kind of our take home. We're not panicking. It's a, it's a single year of data. There are some species that we're starting to look at a bit more closely. And we will, uh, we'll, again, acknowledging that much of the prairies is still dry, we'll have to continue to hope for, for uh, good moisture conditions throughout this fall, into the winter, and then next spring as well. So, um, so that's kind of where we are. 
And cool. we can, we can, I don't know if we're going to follow up on any kind of subsequent episodes with this. We might, I guess. Um, so, so people, I know people will hear, be hearing a little bit more from us on, on a variety of platforms, but yeah, that's kind of where we're, we haven't even really talked about the Eastern survey here. We probably need to do that at some point, but it's probably good, good enough for today, I guess. Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, the good news out of all this, you know, no matter what the numbers, we've got the numbers that came out. That's kind of the kickoff for fall. Um, we, I was standing out in the garage here in the office today and talking to a coworker and their blue wings on the pond. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of that time of year, you know, people are going to start, you know, their mind, minds are changing, shifting towards more fall, towards duck hunting. Um, that's an exciting time. So, you know, no matter what, it's just a good time. You got one more thing for me? I get do. I, I, I can't remember if I started this at the beginning. I should have, but I'll reiterate, I'll, I'll certainly state it here a reminder that these numbers are the breeding population numbers. These are the numbers that were counted in May and June. These numbers do not account for any type of production that would occur this mm-hmm. spring and summer. We know in some landscapes there's going to be some, some good production. We also know, as I've said multiple times here already, portions of the western prairies were very dry um the other thing that i I guess i can plug the waterfowl season outlook that we've got coming up monday night uh go check that out august 21st august 21st yeah thanks for that august 21st uh you can go look for that on the ducks unlimited website and it's a waterfowl season outlook we're going to be convening a panel of folks to uh to kind of go in a bit more detail on this and talk about everything from avian flu to these numbers to kind of improved conditions in California. We haven't really talked about that, um, but we got a lot to talk about and hope, hope folks can join us on, uh, on Monday. Absolutely. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate your insight there. I'd like to thank my co-host, Dr. Mike Brazier, for sitting down with me today and really diving into this, these duck numbers, even on the first day they've been out. I think they've been out for about five hours. It's awesome for him to really dive into it. I'd like to thank Chris Isaac for putting the show together and getting it out to you. And I'd like to thank you, our listeners, for joining the DU Podcast and supporting Wellens Conservation. Thank you for listening to the DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit ducks.org slash DU Podcast. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're, conservationists. we're conservationists with the next generation. The next generation.
Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation, united by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation, take it outside. 